welcome to the Progressing Lives Everywhere podcast, brought to you by Amoria Bond. In each episode, Amoria Bond will interview a prominent leader from across their specialist STEM sectors to discuss their personal experiences of progression and share invaluable insights and inspiring anecdotes of what progression means to them. This is Progressing Lives Everywhere. Hello, I'm Natasha Crump. I'm an advisor to the Amoria Bond Board on Strategic Programmes, Global Diversity and Inclusion Lead and co-founder of the company's Internal Ascend Programme, a network for female employees dedicated to attracting, retaining and progressing more women in the business. On today's episode of the Amoria Bond Progressing Lives Everywhere podcast, I'm joined by Lisa Harrington, FTSE non-exec director for the Post Office, one of the oldest institutions in the UK, and energy infrastructure company, Callison PLC. Lisa is also an advisor to the CEO of the award-winning Tech Pixies, which helps women upskill in digital technology, and she serves on the Smart Energy Board. Lisa's CV makes impressive reading. Since graduating with a degree and postgraduate degree from University College Dublin, she's made her mark in B2B and B2C businesses, from large-scale multinational organisations to PE and infrastructure fund-backed businesses and partnerships. Breaking the mould, Lisa has successfully navigated across industries too. Having worked at Accenture and then the NHS, Lisa spent 10 years as part of BT's executive leadership team, where she founded Tech Women to enable career progression for women in technology roles. Having served as Chief Customer Officer, reporting to BT Group CEO, Lisa then moved on to a non-exec director role at Southern Water and subsequently MD of QA's Tech Learning Division. Until recently, Lisa also served as a member of Microsoft's Learning Partner Advisory Council. She is a mentor for the REACH programme, which supports senior civil servants with either mental health or physical disabilities to maximise their career potential, and also provides pro bono mentoring for the Young Foundation as part of the Inclusive Economy Partnerships programme, whose mission is to unleash potential through a new partnership model between business, civil society and government one that enriches lives to build a more inclusive society. You forgot my number one role as well, which is I'm mum to two wonderful boys. Uh, so I'm, I'm more than anything, I'm a mum. Absolutely. Uh, that's my, my top job always um, around everything else that I do and, and wife to Lorcan as well. So, but thank you, Natasha. That was a lovely introduction. Oh, it's lovely to have you on the podcast today, Lisa. I'd like to start though by asking what progression means to you personally and who has inspired your own progression? Yeah I mean progression for me is always learning and always feeling like I am absolutely bringing something more to my skill set, to my network, to myself. I have never been afraid of just taking on new challenges. I think I probably learned it from consulting and that's probably what drove me to work across industries as well they're remarkably similar and actually sometimes people can be intimidated by by moving industry but it's really not that hard who inspired me I think I mean everybody always says their parents but I think to be probably my parents my my dad was a, a doctor of maths but also put himself through an MBA when he had five children and was still supporting us and I think there was always a, a very heavy value put on education in our family, classic kind of immigrants as well coming to the UK from Ireland. So yeah, I'd say probably my my family and most specifically my dad, Natasha. 
That's really nice to hear. It seems family is really important to you. You're very quick to clarify your number one role there as <laughs> being a mum. So clearly of really, really uh, importance to you there. And lovely to hear you uh, recognising your parents as your inspiration. You've touched on it already, actually, Lisa. But having worked across such a range of sectors, telecoms, utilities, technology, which, as you kind of rightly pointed out, sort of goes against the normal pattern many senior executives take quite often hone in on one sector or industry has that been a deliberate decision is that something you've done by design and in what ways do you think it's benefited your progression to to take that path I think in my view a lot of the businesses I've worked for are really consistent so I like businesses with purpose or organizations with purpose what do I mean by that I mean businesses and organizations that the community or our societies really need. So water is a good example of that. I think telecoms and telecoms infrastructure is a great example. The post office, I feel very passionately about. I'm the granddaughter of a postmaster, and it's really important, particularly in rural societies. And yeah, so actually, whilst the the industries are are different, there is a lot of consistency. Education, which is the last industry I, I most recently worked in again, has the power to completely transform lives. So I feel there's a real constant (laughs) through. And yeah, I guess it probably has been an intentional part of my career map. I didn't sit down and write it, but actually I know I'm really drawn to businesses with purpose. I also know that I really like working in B2B environments. I find B2B environments, they're quite direct. People, you know, they just want to get on with business. There's less maybe a little bit less polished to it, but I think it suits my my style and my experience really well. You've achieved a lot in your career already. And as someone who's worked for you in the past, I know firsthand just how determined you are. And you kind of referenced already there, you know, just you're just getting to it and getting on with it. I'm intrigued. What is it that, that drives you? Where does your ambition come from? Oh, that's a great question. I don't know that I'm competitive, so I don't need other people to fail for me to succeed. I I do really like doing things with people. I think my determination, however, does come from fear of failure. I don't like things to go badly. I do reflect a lot when things don't go the way I really want them to. Not, Not for me personally, but as an outcome. I hate letting customers down. I hate letting people down. I have a very strong kind of need to to do what I say so if we say we're going to do something I really feel then we need to kind of commit and get on and do it so I'm probably the classic ask a busy person as well once I set my mind to stuff I'm, I'm quite tenacious and I just really want to keep going and getting it over the line I suspect if I if, if I were to talk to a psychologist they'd probably say it's partly as well due to being middle child of five you kind of have to make your mark you know you're not the oldest you're not the youngest you're not the cutest you're not the whatever so you know there's probably an element of always being quite independent and always being quite good at propelling myself forward and getting on with things because actually everybody was really busy and yeah so a bit of a mix Natasha I think. (laughs) That's interesting you mentioned fear of failure something I can identify with myself on the flip side of that though what would you say you've learned through failure what's been your kind of biggest life lesson through something you've maybe got wrong? Oh, I've got I've I've got so so many things wrong. And I've definitely become much better at failing and much better at kind of pushing myself into situations where there's a very high probability that things will fail. I've definitely learned to take it a lot less personally. I've definitely learned that actually failing, but failing quickly, I know that the, the cliche of fail fast is actually a really great way to make progress. 
But I think the most overriding thing I've learned is that actually fallibility, so failing and getting things wrong, it's a very endearing human quality. And people like to see authentic leaders be able to admit that they failed, that they weren't good at something, that they got it wrong, and then to kind of rally and get back into it and, and, and do something better. And I think actually where there's almost too much veneer and too much polish and perfection, I don't know that that's quite as compelling as it from a leadership perspective as anymore. I think people like authentic leaders. I think authenticity builds credibility as well, because people can really kind of relate to you in a way that they can't if you seem to be perfect. Oh, I'm about as far from perfect as, as I can imagine. So, uh, yeah, I would totally agree, Natasha. Yeah. A slightly self-indulgent question here, but I'm just interested if you think that having a family has been one of the reasons that has helped you, as you put it, get better at getting things wrong, at being able to to take it less personally. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. So I think I became much less bothered about kind of the veneer and the polish after I had my kids. I can really remember that being a turning point in my career when I went back after having my first son. And I I did get good advice as well from different people. But I do remember just kind of thinking, actually, this is me and I don't really have time to worry as much anymore about what people think of me. This is me and I'm going to just get on with stuff. And I, I probably had as much success, if not more success post kids, even when my kids were really, really small, just from being a little bit more fearless, which which I often, people ask for advice, I often say, particularly for females, that bravery, you can't underestimate, you really have to be brave and you have to push yourself, even if it feels a little bit awkward sometimes. Absolutely. We'll circle back a little bit more about this a bit later, but it seems to me from kind of knowing you in the past and from kind of researching for today that mentoring is something you're really passionate about and I read and I'm going to quote you here that oh no (laughs) um, (laughs) I love building talent and mentoring teams and individuals to achieve their potential I mean that aligns 100% with the purpose of the podcast and Amoria Bond's own company purpose progressing lives everywhere it's very much a purpose kind of driven company Having mentored teams and individuals throughout your career, if you could simplify your methodology on effective mentorship into two or three steps, what would what would they be? I think the first thing, so building teams and mentoring for me are two very different things. When I'm a mentor and I have a lot of mentees still that I work with, the most important thing is to listen and really put questions back to the individual and help them work things out themselves. Often people need a sounding board. They need to be asked maybe hard questions that that are going around in their head anyway, but somebody needs to ask it of them. They need to actually vocalize or think through where they are on maybe a new job or a career decision or whatever it might be. Building teams for me is slightly different. That's something where I'm much more actively engaged and involved. I see my role is spotting people's talents. Everybody is good at something. I'm absolutely sure of that. But sometimes people end up in the wrong role or they've been too long in a role or they haven't been stretched or they're lacking confidence. And I think when I'm building teams, again, I'll listen to people and ask them what they want to do, what they're good at, what they think they're good at. But I'm probably more actively engaged in also putting them into roles and being a bit more directive. I think I probably learned it from my time in Accenture 
and BT actually, where particularly in Accenture, your product is your team. That's all you have. And if you have people in the wrong roles or if they're not able for a role or, or, or they're not stretched enough or you, you lose them, it can be really destabilizing for the delivery of your, of your project and successful outcomes for the, for the client. So I got good advice in BT early on, which is you've really got to focus, particularly when you join a team um, and you're leading it. First thing you've got to do is work out whether people are in the right roles and not to be afraid of having difficult conversations. It's often a relief to people if they're not performing and maybe nobody's bothered to, to have that difficult conversation before and maybe adding some new perspectives as well. You know, diversity is is a brilliant thing. So more and more, I try to push myself to have just really different perspectives to my own, whether that's age, gender, background, you know, it all really adds to the riches of the team. I wonder, Lisa, is that why you... Do you mentoring, some volunteer mentoring as well? We, we talked about in my introduction, I mentioned your work with Reach and with the Young Foundation. Is it that kind of access to diversity of opinions and people that, that drives that? Or is there something else behind those voluntary roles? I think the main problem is I'm absolutely rubbish at saying no. <laughs> so that's my number one flaw. I am so brutally bad at saying no to people. When they ask for time, I, I've got a little bit better, but more often than not, I say yes. <laughs> the reach thing is really specific. I, I genuinely do think there's a whole world of diversity in disabilities and bringing more people with disabilities through you know, the career ladder. This really came home to me, I think, partly through my interest in mental health, but partly working with a number of the government agencies in, in last year, there's a huge amount of people on the neurodiversity spectrum who actually can add a lot in particular roles, but they're often overlooked. And it was a really specific intention to make sure that I was, I was you know, helping in some way. So that's probably where that comes from. I think just generally, I also just, I probably believe in the Madeleine Albright phrase of, you know, there's a cold place in hell or whatever for, for women who don't help women. And I, I think, you know, as per the people who've helped me, I do feel a real obligation to pay it forward and make sure I'm I'm passing on any help I can, I can give. Absolutely. Agree with that one. Before we move on, I'm really interested to know, just in the interest of encouraging people who, who will be listening to this podcast, who aren't currently mentoring, but who maybe are considering it or should be considering it, just to kind of encourage them to, to think about it. What have you learned about yourself through mentoring others? That's a good question. I mean, I, I think particularly if somebody's very, very different from me, I often come away thinking, blimey, I'm going to work for that person at some point. You know, they're really, you know, they're really tenacious or they're really driven or they know digital better than me or they're, you know, there's something about them that just makes me think. So I, I'd rarely have a mentoring session where I don't reflect myself on sometimes sometimes I'm in a bit of a rut myself and you know just listening to the ambition of another person can be a really good kickstarter as well I think it's also just really great from a network perspective I try not to hire people who I, I mentor but I have done and I think again just keeping in touch with the talent that's out there is a super way to kind of build your own relevance too as you as you move through different careers absolutely and we were, we were saying before we started recording weren't we about how through your career different people kind of pop back up at different stages as well I absolutely. guess you he says the world's a big place but I find it gets smaller and smaller <laughs> oh, I couldn't agree more I couldn't agree more the more people I come across and you know different roles and guises and changes of career and all sorts 
and even through you know my my non-work life so I've ended up recently consulting to a wonderful business a fiber business and the CEO her her kids are in my kids school and actually I, I would never network intentionally in in a social context in a kind of private life but actually it was a it was a great piece of work and I really enjoyed it and she really enjoyed it and yeah so there's, there's just endless opportunity. I absolutely identify with that. I've found the school playground has been actually a wealth of networking opportunities unintentionally. But yeah, it's 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 been fascinating to me how how that's worked. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I in my back to authentic, I think in my earlier career I made a really big point of separating my work life from my home life. And I think as I've grown older and more comfortable with myself, I, I, that that has blurred massively. It, and I'm more comfortable just being quite transparent about myself in a work context. And, and again, I think that adds to people. It makes you a little bit more relevant and a bit more real. Absolutely. Thinking about when you've supported others with their progression, is there an example that really stands out for you when you felt like, yes, I've made a real difference here? The one I'll pick on, but it was probably it's probably a an unusual one. It was founding tech women in BT. So by accident, I ended up being probably one of the more senior women's, probably the most senior technical woman in in BT. And by that I mean in a tech job, I was a CIO of, of the BT wholesale division. And you know, it's kind of ironic to me. I started with a German and politics degree. I'm not obvious as a as a techie, but I had built skills and ended up in that role. And I, I realized that actually that was casting a big shadow across lots and lots of women who were looking at me thinking, wow, she's relatively senior, she's got two kids, she's technical. And I realized I needed to do something positive with that responsibility. So I set up on a shoestring with my boss's support, but not financial support, (laughs) uh, the BT Tech Women Programme. We took a couple of hundred women in the UK and then the same in India. And we basically just put them through a confidence and kind of networking skill building programme. And it just took off. It was like we unleashed this really positive energy and positive support network that was just latent and waiting for somebody to kind of set it free. And it was just really, really, really rewarding. And I genuinely felt that we had positively impacted a lot of females' lives, not just their careers, but their lives. And it was really, really rewarding. And it still it still goes on. I think there's a number of thousand women going through the BT Tech Women program now. It's evolved massively under the brilliant leadership of Rachel Hyam, who's who's also a CIO in, in BT. And you know, it's progressed so much since the, the shoestring that we set it up on. But actually, the essence of it is still the same, which is really supporting women in a technical environment through their careers. How important do you think it is, thinking about other other businesses, in order to attract and retain female talent, that companies do facilitate and support networks like tech women for their female employees? Well, to be honest with you, I think diversity on all levels is really critical. So whether it's race, whether it's disability, whether it's gender, you know, I know there's a huge debate about networks and quotas and whether we're doing the right things. But, you know, in reality, unfortunately, a lot of environments are still very homogenous. It's still often lots of men, often lots of white men and or white men and women. And actually, 
that doesn't represent our customer customer base. So I do think networks add a lot. It's one of the things that I think all the studies say often women undervalue. They undervalue the importance of a network and a, a business network of, of similar like-minded, capable and ambitious, you know, females. So I think it's it's critical. I think I'm not at all the kind of, you know, men hating breed. I I really I'm only where I am because of my husband. He, you know, early on we agreed to do a direct divide on childcare. You know, I'm I'm a really big fan of of supporters as well as kind of, you know, diversity advocates. So I think everybody plays a role. And yeah, I don't think we'll progress without them. We haven't cracked any of the diversity conundrums yet. I think it'll be you know, I don't have any daughters, two sons, but I hope they're advocates and, and supporters for diversity as they move through their lives. Absolutely. What advice or tips would you give to, we're talking about about women here, so professional working women or, or other groups out there listening who want to set up something similar, their own network in their own organisation, but are coming up against resistance, whether that's at board level or the wider organisation who, you know, perceive it as exclusive, or I've even heard arguments that it's it's sexist in terms of female networks. I mean, I can't believe in this day and age that anybody <laughs> anybody thinks that they're not a good thing, but I'm sure they're I am sure that they, they do <laughs> so I'm, I'm gutted to hear that, Natasha, but then I've certainly been really pleasantly you know, surprised, not least because of all the policy changes on how focused organizations are on diversity and specifically gender diversity. I think if you're getting, you know, pushback, you only need one sponsor probably to really make it happen. I was brilliantly lucky. I was working for a guy called Clive Selly, who's now the CEO of Openreach. And he was unbelievably supportive. And he kept telling me to do it. And, you know, as I said, it wasn't a financial thing that I needed loads of cash or got loads of cash. But he gave me a voice and a mandate. And that's really what you need. So find your sponsor is probably my top tip. And it doesn't need to be a, a woman. I think that's the point as well. You know, Clive's a white man. He came up through BT as an engineer, but he was really passionate about changing the dynamic. And that wouldn't be obvious when you met him, but he's extremely passionate about it. And most men have mums and daughters and wives. And, and actually, you know, they, they really do want to um, get a better balance for, for the future. Absolutely. Again, agreeing with you vociferously here, same experience, setting up our own Ascend network um, within a memoria bond, took the idea to the board and could not have had more support. And you're absolutely right. Having that board level sponsorship is so, so helpful. And I mean, often they just need someone like you or like me and back in the day to step forward and you know I find generally you know if you've got a great idea and you're passionate about something whatever it might be people generally are quite supportive because you're going out in the limb you're going to make something happen and actually for them there's very little they need to do so again I you know kind of back to the bravery thing never never feel and um, never worry about people saying no because even if they do say no that's really not an awful thing either all it is is a no so you know the bravery element I think is important I'm going to shift focus a little bit now, Lisa. I'm really sorry I'm quoting you again here. Oh, no, where are you getting all these quotes from? I, I, I'm not quite a low profile, I would have thought, but I guess I, I guess not. I do my research. If, if nothing, I like to be really prepared. I'm going to have to Google myself after this interview. It's a recent quote. Um, okay. You recently wrote, 
there are lots of job opportunities for people with digital skills. Retraining is a critical part of closing the gap and the digital divide. I'm interested to understand what it is you think are the main causal factors that have contributed to the digital talent shortage. Oh, that's a that's a great question. Yes, I definitely did say that. And I'm really, really passionate about the opportunities that that kind of tech digital can offer. So I think the reason we are where we are is we don't teach technology particularly well in our schools or actually post school. And in reality, we know we turn a lot of people off it as a, a topic. We don't really amp up some of the more energetic, creative roles like um, social media roles, like, you know, kind of interpretation of tech into business speak. We're much more focused on the kind of coding and slightly less appealing jobs, particularly for females. And actually, I think the statistics show that over the last number of years, despite the fact that university degrees are going up, technical IT degrees are in decline, which is such a shame given the context. So I, I think we are where we are because we haven't thought things in the right way um, and we haven't made it appealing to people. On the flip side, COVID, but even before COVID, has meant that the growing need has exploded in anything that is transformational, technology enabling, digital enabling. And I just think it's such a great opportunity because I think for lots of people who maybe can't afford or aren't drawn to university, you don't need a university degree to be brilliant in tech. And there are so many examples of brilliant entrepreneurs and brilliant business men and women who don't have technology, you know, kind of credentials stamped, but who have been massively successful. And the main thing you have to have is a passion for it. There are lots of great, great courses out there for women and men who want to retrain. I think businesses more and more are going to have to retrain the staff that they have because there just isn't enough people out there with digital skills. The last business I ran, QA, training it was one of the things we did we trained it departments but we actually pushed really heavily into retraining people who had an interest or had a financial need to retrain and were willing to put the time to boot camps or you know whatever commitment to actually get up the it ladder you've pretty much answered my next question ah. which was to know to understand your opinion on what role or responsibility businesses could and should be taking to help redress the digital divide yeah, I think, well, you know, it's not even that they should be taking in terms of responsibility. It's just a necessity there. You know, the reality is if you get if you get a brilliant tech degree or digital degree, you probably have your pick of employers. And, you know, naturally, particularly the Gen Z age group, they gravitate towards, you know, the Googles if, if they want a, a big name on their CV or some smaller startups or they may decide to set up by themselves. So actually, the, the more traditional businesses who are very disrupted by you know, move to digital are completely scrambling for tech and digital skills and data skills as well. You know, people who understand data can use it. I had a brilliant example and a good call out to um, one of my old buddies from BT, Joe Garner, who runs Nationwide. And they they have a big obligation to um, the Swindon area. It's where their one of their big bases are. And they actively set about retraining a really significant group of their employees from traditional IT skills into kind of more advanced digital skills. And they made that commitment because they want to stay in Swindon. They can't get the skills otherwise. And retraining was a great way of building on the knowledge that their employees already had. 
So great shout out to Nationwide on that one. But actually, there are lots of businesses going through the same thought process and retraining people. You mentioned that there were some fantastic entrepreneurs who didn't take the traditional kind of university route, but have gone on to do incredibly well. Just if we've got anybody listening to this podcast who's thinking, hmm, this could be for me, a bit of an opportunity for a name check here in terms of anyone you'd recommend people looking up as a really good example of, of achieving in this space without that kind of university degree. Let me think. I mean, there, I think there are a lots of kind of Palo Alto type examples. So lots of the West Coast folk definitely didn't fit the, the kind of the mould. I think there's a, a, a great lady called Priya Lakani. Priya set up a business called Century Tech, which is one of the best AI businesses I've come across in the UK. She's a complete entrepreneur. Her background's actually in law. So she did do a degree, but she absolutely didn't do a degree in the um tech space she started in kind of policy setting and I think in some of the government bodies she's a mum she's a bit of a powerhouse she's constantly being voted kind of you know superwoman of the year and I think that's a good example of just a complete pivot I'm trying to think of some examples of people who who actually haven't done actually one of my colleagues in QA when I was there who ran our apprenticeship division Ben Pike is a good example of somebody who didn't go to university. He made a choice early on not to, but was unbelievably successful in growing our apprenticeship division over, you know, in a private equity context over a, a significant number of years. So there are definitely people out there. And I think more and more tech is a, a passport to travel. And if you can get some basic tech skills, which are often free, there are sites like Future Future Learn. I think the new skills initiative being set up by the government, there'll be free access to training as well and digital skills. And yeah, just get your foot in the door and get some experience and, and don't be afraid of it at any, at any age. Don't be afraid of it. Great advice there. I know we'll have listeners who are keen to hear from you what key trends you expect to see in digital technology in the next few years. What should we be looking out for? I think... Uh, I don't know that it'll be a trend that consumers will notice, but certainly within my networks, there's a lot more focus on the ethics of some of the things that we're doing and and how we control the machine a bit more, how we worry about what we're building in in terms of bias into AI. And I think the, the ethics of AI will become a thing. I don't think it quite exists yet, but I, I think it will be a thing for sure. What else would I say? I think... I always talked a lot to, to customers when I was selling training to about the, the interpretation of tech. So I think there'll be there'll always be people who understand deep tech. But actually, for many people, it's a black box and you need people who understand the black box and who can talk business and who can talk customer to kind of translate and stand in the center. And they're often called product owners in an agile context, but people who are really they're, they're business focused, but they understand the technology enough. And I think that kind of creative business focused space is very, very hard to fill at the moment as well. So I hope that's a trend too. And then I get, I think just the last trend I think is, it's it's already happened, but I think it'll happen even more, is just around data literacy. And lots of organisations, again, are putting their entire workforces through kind of data literacy programmes, how to use data, how to understand data. Tesco's a great example. They're already training their staff in kind of data literacy and, and even their finance departments in, in how to think more about what data can do for you and, and how you know, biases and data sets can impact choices and, and relevance to customers. Presumably, those are the key trends that 
businesses need to be focusing on, in your opinion, to, to keep pace and remain competitive moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I think cloud technologies have meant that a lot of stuff is is very easy. You can configure things, you can set it up. You, you don't need the same scale of infrastructure. So I do think a lot of it's moving more towards the kind of data and services layers in, in technology speak. But I still think this, you know, I keep using the word translator, but the ability to interpret what a business needs and then get the tech to do it for them. I think that's just a real gap. And I think, you know, there aren't that many people who do that well and who kind of can fill that space. I'm working for Amori Bond, a STEM recruitment company specialising in technology and engineering. Our recruiters are obviously highly familiar with some of the key challenges clients face, skill shortages, ageing workforce populations. And we've already mentioned significant gender imbalances. As a woman, Lisa, who's broken the, the so-called glass ceiling, you're undoubtedly a role model for many women in tech. I sense from our conversation already that with that, you feel a sense of responsibility to other professional women? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I always used to say to the BT tech women is you're a role model whether you like it or not, pretty much at every level. You don't have to be very far in your career to have people who are more junior to you and who are looking at you and looking at kind of what you're doing, what your behaviours are, whether you get balance in your life, how you make decisions, how you treat other people. And as you become more senior, that becomes even starker. And yeah, I think as a female in a, in a very male environment, absolutely, I feel a big responsibility. And yeah, you've got, you know, I'm always worrying about the, the, the shadow I'm casting because everybody's casting a shadow for sure. Do you think that that still, there's still a case that women in very senior executive positions like yourself feel more under the microscope than their male peers? Yeah, I think to an extent all minorities are because, you know, it, the, the classic adage of you can see it, you, if you can see it, you can do it. I think there has to be people looking up to you thinking, how did she get there? Did she get there in a good way? Do I want to emulate any of the things that she's done? I think there just are more men <laughs> at the yeah. top, unfortunately, right now. So I think until it until things balance out a bit, Yes, I think I think anybody in a minority category is going to be more under the microscope. But, it, you know, it, com- it comes with great responsibility, but it's exciting, too. So I don't fear it. I think it's just it's just reality. We've mentioned a few times about your passion for diversity in its in its broadest sense. And I'm just interested what you would say to board members of STEM companies who'd be listening, listening to the board, this podcast in making a compelling business case for them to prioritise diversity in their organisation? Oh, well, there are so many studies to show that companies that have a diverse makeup, particularly at the top, but everywhere, and actually the hardest layer is the executive layer, the kind of not necessarily the non-execs, because actually a lot of progress has been made, certainly on gender imbalance in on boards. But I think the executive teams, they can benefit so much. And yeah, I can't remember what the stats are on the, the financial impact, but in just representing their customers in their decision making. And that's really what it comes down to. You know, over half the population, I think last time I checked, is female. And more and more females actually have financial decision making kind of powers in the household or or maybe they're they're um financially independent or whatever it might be. And 
unfortunately, the reality of how products get developed is people build in their own biases. You have got to have a balance of people creating something to appeal to the right market. It's just science. It, it makes complete sense. I also think different personality types, you know, gender, diversity, everything just makes for a much more fun board. You know, I've been in boards where I've been surrounded by lots of alpha personalities and they're not a great way to spend the day. <laughs> and also often alpha male, not always alpha male, you get alpha females as well. But actually you don't get to good decisions if everybody's kind of trying to outtalk each other. Lisa, you've shared some fantastic insights. So thank you. Before we close though, I just like to finish on this last question. What's the most significant lesson you've learned or piece of advice you'd give that might help someone progress a goal, ambition or area of their own life? Oh, I've learned so many different things. So I've, I've endless lessons to myself. But I think if I had to, can I give two? A little bit you can give us I think I'm, I think I'm going to give, I I think I'm gonna give you two you. rather than one. So I think one is, and I think unfortunately women often don't, think this through enough it's not just what you do it's also what people think you do so you do have to put some energy into your profile into your network and your sponsors without that you could be beavering away doing the most spectacular job but if nobody knows or somebody else is taking the credit you will be overlooked and that's absolutely not great and it's very disheartening but it's reality and it's definitely something I learned early on in my career you've got to make sure people are aware of what you're doing that there is an element of self-promotion not to make yourself feel phony but you've got to make sure you are looking at that and, and managing it and then the second thing which is I guess a more positive thing is just never stop learning never 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 allow yourself to be in a comfort zone where things are too same samey personally there are times when you need a lot of stability and I've definitely had times either when my kids were small when my dad was sick I really wanted my job to be as stable as possible but then my energy levels went back up and I had the time to go and make a career move or a new role and you've got to keep pushing yourself. And if you're not slightly nervous about your day when you look in your diary thinking, oh, that could be hard or that could be exciting, then you probably need to move on. I know I said it was my last question, but I've got one more. <laughs> That's fine. Go for it. In the interest of never stop learning, what are you reading or what was the last book that, that made an impact and made you think? Well, I'm I'm actually reading a, a well, I'm reading a book called The Glass House, but that's not probably what I'll focus on if that's okay. What I'm doing is I'm doing a lot of Coursera stuff at the moment. So Coursera is another free resource, lots of great courses online. And what I've decided to do is put myself through a finance for infrastructure course, because I don't know enough about infrastructure financing and it's really relevant to my job on the energy company. So there you go. Never stop learning. Never Fantastic. stop learning. Yeah. I'm also doing a dinghy sailing course in about two weekends time because um, my kids have begun to sail and I can't sail. So I'm going to try and learn to sail on the Thames, which is terrifying. Oh but, my um, <laughs> think of me in about two weeks time in my, uh, in my probably in the shuddering cold. But uh, yeah, again, pushing myself out of my comfort zone. That's definitely out of my comfort zone. I'm <laughs> in the water in the winter is. Uh, yeah, if a 48 year old can do it, I'm sure you can do it, Natasha. <laughs> Oh, Lisa, thank you so much. I've really, really enjoyed speaking with you today. And uh, thank you for joining us on Progressing Lives Everywhere. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for all the great questions. Thank you for listening to Progressing Lives Everywhere, brought to you by Moria Bond. We hope you enjoyed this episode. 
please be sure to subscribe, like, and leave a review. Every time you do, it helps others find the podcast. For more information on Amoria Bond's specialist services and to access the podcast show notes, head over to amoriabond.com. Join us next time as we continue to progress lives everywhere.